Well, good morning. Good morning to everyone that's tuning in online and praise God for our family ministry team and the work that they're doing in the lives of our young people here. So praise God for Justin and those who are serving and are away at camp. Let's continue to pray for them as they're away. Uh, this week, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Ephesians. Last week in Ephesians 1, we looked at who we are in Christ. and Ephesians 2, we're going to look at who we were. So last week, we looked at who uh, we are, and this week, we're going to look at who we were. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father God, we come to you in your mighty son's Jesus' name. God, we pray that you would open up your scripture and speak to us today. Speak to our hearts. You know what we need. Father God, I pray that you would move me out of the way. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and be made much of in the lives of your people. God, minister to their hearts. Allow your word to be brought to life in a way that they can connect with in their hearts. God, give us your marching orders for us. What do you have for us today? God, we're available to you, and I offer myself as available as your vessel. God, do as you wish. It's in your mighty son's Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In the early 1930s, two young men, two Jewish immigrants, were trying to break into the comic book industry. They were trying to find their character. They were trying to find someone. They were trying to create someone that would allow them to break into the comic industry. And so they tried. And time after time, they received rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter. And it seemed like they would never break into the comic industry until finally they had their person. Finally, they had their guy. They had come up with this superhero that would allow them to break into the comic industry finally. He was faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Dun, 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 dun. He was Superman. The, these two young Jewish immigrants, barely out of their teen, teens, scribed Superman. They created the story of Superman. True story, the original version of Superman was created on a brown paper bag. That's all of the resources that they had. So they, so they, they drew a picture of Superman on a brown paper bag and they began to uh, create this story of what would be known as the famous Superman. They went on to sell the rights to Superman for 130 bucks. And so, there you have it. <laughs> In the book, Up, Up, and Away, the authors chronicle the history of how a lot of our modern superheroes came to be. And many of our modern superheroes, superheroes like Captain America and uh, Batman uh, and Superman, the, these superheroes were created by many second-generation Jewish immigrants. Many of these second-generation Jewish immigrants were, were barely out of their teens. Uh, but this was a point in history where Jewish people were facing intense 
persecution. These were uh, in situations such as World War II and the Holocaust and even persecution towards uh, Jewish immigrants here in the, in the United States. And it's in the backdrop of that darkness that these young people armed with their imagination began to scribe these superheroes, superheroes like Batman who, who brought about justice and superheroes such as Captain America. And they brought about these heroes at a time when there was much suffering in the Jewish community and in a time when the Jewish community needed a real hero and needed real hope. True story, many of these, these heroes were created in the image of a Jewish Messiah. A Jewish Messiah that many of these young people would have grown up learning about. A Jewish Messiah that would promote righteousness and justice and peace. A Jewish Messiah that would eradicate evil once and for all. And us as Christ followers know that Jewish Messiah to be none other than Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. Many of the modern superheroes that pack out theaters and that make billions of dollars were created in the image of a Jewish Messiah that would promote righteousness, that would promote justice and promote peace and that would eradicate evil once and for all. And could that be the reason that we, that we, we, we go to theaters and sit for two hours or more. Avengers was so long, it was three and a half hours. And we sit in these theaters for all of this time and, the, and these heroes give us a sense of hope. Uh, they give us a sense of, of joy as they, as they wipe out evil and, and take out the bad guy once and for all and bring justice, righteousness, and peace. Could this be the reason that these stories resonate with us so much? because these stories are ultimately scribed on our hearts. Could it be that we were created for such a story? Could it be that we were created for such a hero, a hero that would promote justice, righteousness, and peace, a hero that would eradicate evil once and for all? The story that we see in a lot of these movies and with a lot of these heroes are ultimately the story of salvation. This is the story of salvation. The story of creation, fall, and redemption. This is the story of salvation. This is the story that is ultimately written in our hearts. We were created for such a story. So, so what, 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 do we, what do we do with that? In, in, in church settings, we, we often hear about getting saved or being saved. What does that even mean? Saved from what? Saved for what? Saved by what? So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the story of salvation that's, that's written on our hearts. But sometimes we can get a little confused. Like, what does this even mean? It can, it can sound like Christianese. Uh, it can just be church language, this idea of getting saved and, and, and being saved. Well, well, well true story, this, this is written on our hearts by our Creator. And sometimes we forget the story, though. Sometimes we can tell ourselves another story. And something happens when we get removed uh, from a story long enough. We, we can begin to forget the details and we can begin to tell ourselves something that's not really true. It's like the guy who tells a story about him being the high school quarterback 
and it was the championship game. You remember that, Johnny? It was the championship game, and we were down by six, and I threw that touchdown at the end, and we won the championship that day, and the crowd went crazy. Back in 76, you remember that? And his friend is like, no, you were not the quarterback. You did not throw the game-winning touchdown. When you remove yourself from a story long enough, you can begin to forget the details. And the stories that we tell ourselves influence the way that we live, love, and lead. The stories that I tell myself will influence the way that I live, love, and lead. If I tell myself that the story of salvation in my life is the story where I found God and I fixed myself and I changed myself, you remember that I changed my life and because of that now other people need to change their life and, and somehow, somewhere we exaggerate the story of our salvation and we make ourselves the hero of our story and we end up not being very gracious because of it. Because if I'm the hero of my story, then you need to be the hero of your story. If I saved myself, then you need to save yourself. If I fixed my life, well, you need to get with it and fix yourself. Usually people with a great story are very gracious people. And people with a work story, well, they're they probably going to tell you to get to work. And so, what story have you been telling yourself lately? What story has been playing in your mind is it a story where you fixed yourself, you got your life together, and everybody else needs to fix themselves and get their lives together? Or is it a story of grace where by grace, my God saved me and transformed me and I, I owe him everything because it was him that fixed me and because I know that it was him that changed my life and found me in my brokenness, I can be gracious and compassionate to others. In Ephesians 2, as we get ready to dive in Ephesians 2, what we're going to see is, we're going to see the story of salvation laid out before us. And in Ephesians 1, Paul tells us of who we are. But in Ephesians 2, he's going to tell us who we were and what we were actually saved from. If you are a Christ follower, he's going to explain what we're actually saved from. This is Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus. And he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is who you were. You were dead, spiritually dead. And the last time I checked, dead means dead. Not moving, not breathing, not talking, not doing a thing, dead. Spiritually dead, unresponsive to God. It, it, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like if I unplug this TV and turn this TV off, I can stand in front of it all day with a remote and I can try to change the channel. I can try to adjust the volume, but it cannot respond to me because unless it is connected to an exterior power source, it is dead, unable to respond. And apart from Christ, this is the human condition. This is where God finds us. He finds us in this situation of being spiritually dead, utterly desperate. Okay, so that, if anything, that should humble us. If, when God found me, it wasn't that uh, I was up and at him and pursuing him. No, he found me dead. And it gets worse. Let's continue. Let's continue in the next passage. It gets worse from here. In which you, were you, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So not only were you dead when God found you, 
And it says, in the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Not only were you, you, were, were you dead when God found you, it says that you followed the world. And you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. What's the world? Not, not the earth, right? Not, not, not dirt and, and, and liquid and gas, right? By the world, he, he's talking about the systems and values and culture that opposes the kingdom of God. He says, before God entered into your story, you were following that. This is who you were. You were dead and you were following the systems, structures, values, and the ways of the world that opposes the kingdom of God. This is who you were. This is a very uh, desperate situation that should humble us. So world, what does that mean about worldly? Sometimes we can typecast worldly as meaning, oh, those are the people uh, that, that uh, have tattoos and ride motorcycles and uh, drink a lot and party a lot. I, I was never worldly. What do you mean, Paul, worldly? I'm not worldly. I don't, even, I don't even have any tattoos. What do you mean, worldly? I'm not worldly. What do you mean by that? Well, sometimes we can typecast this idea of worldliness and forget the point that it's not talking about these exterior things that we, in these superficial ways uh, that we view worldliness. Worldliness is running away from God and following another system. And it can even show up in religious settings. It can show up in the church, uh, in a book, Screwtape Letters. The author C.S. Lewis tells a story about a demon uh, that has been assigned to uh, an individual, and he's trying to influence this individual away from God. And the stereotypical stuff that we might come up with as worldliness wasn't working for this, for this guy. And so here's what the demon says. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, if we can't get him away from that, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster, connoisseur of churches. Religious consumerism is a form of worldliness. When I step foot into a church and everything has to be the way that I want it, the sermon has to be just how I like it, uh, the music has to be just the way I want it, the temperature has to be just right, I need to like the coffee, and everything needs to be good, and if it's not the way I want it, then, well, that's a bad church, and I got to find the church that fits me. Satan can work like that as well. That is a form of worldliness and one that we are very susceptible of as modern 21st century Christians. And if Satan can't get us with the typical stuff, the stereotypical worldly stuff, he can, he can get us with that. And Paul says, before Christ entered into your story, you were worldly. You, you, you were following Satan. It, was, it goes from bad to, to worse to even more bad. Let's continue. You thought that was bad. Let's look at verse 3. It says, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Let's go back a slide. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. All right, man. It's getting from bad to worse. I was dead. 
I was worldly, I was following Satan, and I was gratifying the cravings of our flesh. What do you mean by flesh, Paul? You're talking about, talking about a, pe- a piece of meat? What do you mean by, by flesh? No, he's not talking about uh, a piece of meat when he, when, he, when he mentions flesh. Flesh is the, the spiritual disease that exists in every one of us that pulls us away from the, the will of God. It, it's the part of me that wants my way and that runs away from God. It's the part of me that wants to please myself as opposed to living to please God and to serve others. And Paul says, before Christ, we were gratifying it. We were giving that flesh whatever it wanted. This is a, a desperate situation. And it gets worse. Let's, let's look at the next slide. And it says that because of that, you were, you, you were deserving of wrath. You were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, this is, this is a hard word. Uh, we, we were deserving of wrath. God is a just God. And because he's a just God, one day he's going to judge all of us and we're going to have to give an account for this life. We're all marching towards a day in which we will stand before our Creator. And deep in our hearts, we want justice. As a matter of fact, we want God to remove evil. One of the questions that people ask is, if God is so good, why doesn't he rid the world of evil? Why doesn't he get rid of all of the evil and all of the darkness in the world? We, we have a longing for justice in our hearts. Even some of these uh, superheroes were created uh, out of a desire for justice. Some of these uh, heroes were created during the time of Hitler and the time of the Holocaust uh, when the world wanted justice and wanted the, the evil to be ridded of the world. So in our hearts is a longing for justice. We want evil gone. We want evil eradicated. But the thing about that is God is going to eradicate all of the evil in the world, including the evil that exists in us. And and here's how this works. Here's how this works. Unless my sin is removed from me, then my sin will remain with me. And if my sin remains with me, then I cannot remain with God. And lest my sin is removed from me, my sin will remain with me. And if my sin remains with me, then I cannot remain with God. When I show up on my day of judgment, and if the sin has not been removed, then I cannot enter in because heaven would not be heaven with sin and evil in it. We've had enough evil here (laughs) on earth. We've had enough wickedness here on earth, and that place is supposed to be a place where that doesn't exist anymore. So it has to be removed from me. Here's the thing. I can't remove it myself, but God. This is one of the most beautiful phrases in all of Scripture. It's two words, but God. I was dead in my trespasses. I was dead in sin. I was worldly. I was following Satan. I I, I was deserving of wrath, gratifying the desires of the flesh. Why would God care to let me in? Why would God care to make me his own? I don't deserve that. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ and by grace you have been saved. But God, he enters into our story and he's the one that removes the sin. Remember, if, I, if my sin remains with me, then I cannot remain with God. Well, God steps in and by his grace, he removes the sin. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus and he makes us alive. That which was dead is raised to life. And sometimes we can miss this, though, and we can tell ourselves another story. Because we get removed from the details of our story, we can be tempted to believe that it was us who raised us. And because of us, we might be tempted to say that I was drowning and the water was rough. Guys, the water was rough and I was drowning. And Jesus was my lifeguard. And Jesus was my lifeguard. He caught me when I was drowning and he brought me to shore. Jesus caught me and I was trying, I was fighting against that water and Jesus came. And, but the reality is, the true story is, we were dead at the bottom of the ocean, not breathing. And we had been there for a few days. But God, he enters into the ocean and brings us up and he makes us alive. That is a true story. That is a story that will promote humility in us. Because if I was dead, I had nothing to do with it. And that'll encourage me to be a little bit more gracious and merciful to others when we were reminded of the story, the real story, the stories that I tell myself will influence the way I live, love, and lead. Let's continue. Regeneration. This is what happens. This is a doctrine in the, in the scriptures, this, this doctrine that tells of what truly happens to us when God brings us from death to life? Regeneration is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of granting spiritual life to dead sinners. This is not a work in which man contributes, but is a work of God alone. Much as an infant receives no credit for being born, man receives no glory from being regenerated by God. We receive no glory, all of the glory goes to him. Continuing in verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. This is the good news expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He's seated us up with him in the heavenly realms. Let's, I want to go back to that verse 6. It says he, he, he seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Past his seated. That means this has already happened. Positionally, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is who you are. He has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. This is what we have to look forward to. Sometimes we get a little glimpse of what this might look like. If we, if we serve a God who created these, these beautiful things in nature in which we see, when we look at them, we get a glimpse of what the future might look like. I want to just look at some of these images that I saw this week. This is from a recent telescope. The God who created this has something for you in the future, and you will be seated with him in glory. 
this is just a foretaste. This is, uh, uh, this is just a foretaste. The scripture says, uh, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. As we, as we look up, sometimes the heavens preach a sermon to us. And what this says is that one day there will be glory. There will be glory after this. And you will be seated with him. The person that was deserving of wrath, the person that was worldly, the person that was dead will be seated with God in glory. And sometimes creation just winks at us and tells us that there will be glory after this. This is good news. When it was, getting, uh, uh, from, when it was going from bad to worse, we saw how dark it was, but now we can see it getting better and better. Let's continue in, in, in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. This is the true story of salvation. This is how it really happens. You're saved by grace through faith, not by yourself, not by your works, not by your doing. Uh, some some uh, church leaders uh, back in, in, in the Reformation era broke this down into something called the five solas. And I want to look at this with us. The five solas, not the five colors, uh, because if it's five colors, that's too much caffeine. All right, dad joke, I'm working on them. All right. So, sola scriptura, this is the first one. Scripture alone, that means everything that we need to understand our salvation is found in the scriptures. The scripture is the ultimate authority in the life of a believer. And scripture alone is, is what we need to understand all of the tunes, and, uh, all of the tools and means of our salvation. Sola fide, faith alone. We're saved by placing our faith in the finished work of Christ, not in us. Sola gratia, grace alone. It is by grace that we're saved, not because of anything that we have done. So sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. We sang that earlier. It's in Christ alone that we are saved. He is the means of our salvation. He's the one that saved us. And lastly, soli dei a gloria, for the glory of God alone. Meaning he is the hero of the story. Meaning he is the one that gets the credit and the glory. And he's the one that wears the cape in our story. We've saved, we're saved by grace alone. To the glory of God alone. In Christ alone. By faith alone. With the authority of scripture alone. This is who we are. This is the true story. We might be tempted to tell ourselves another story. But this is what really happen with us. And the story that we tell ourselves will influence the way that we live, love, and lead. Verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. When we think it's about us, we're tempted to boast. And we're not only, we're not only tempted to boast, we're tempted to look down on other people. But when we recall who we truly are, we'll walk with a sense of humility. So Paul lays this out for us so that we can give glory to God and not boast in ourselves. One, one theologian said it like this. And he said, God has surely promised his grace to the humbled, that is, to those who mourn over and despair over themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, wills, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another, God alone. 
The stories that we tell ourselves will influence the way that we live, love, and lead. So what story have you been telling yourself lately? What story have you been telling yourself lately about you as it relates to your story? Have you been telling yourself that you're the hero? Man, there's a lot of pressure being a hero. But is this is the story? You're wearing the cape. You're the one that saved you. You're the one that fixed your life. And you have to save other people and, and fix other people's lives. Shout out to the kid that allowed me to use his cape, by the way. <laughs> but are you the one having to wear the cape? That is a lot of pressure to be a hero, to, to, for it to be up to you all the time. That's a lot of weight. And in Christ, he says, you no longer have to carry the weight and burden of being a hero. But that might be the story that some of us are playing in our heads. Some of us might be playing the story of a villain. Are you the villain? Is that the story that plays over and over in your head? I'm the one that always messes up. I'm the one that always gets in trouble. I'm the one that never can get it right. I'm, I'm the villain. I'm the villain in my family. I'm the villain at school. Some people might embrace the villain narrative and, and like being the villain. Uh, the, the great theologian Billy Eilish said, I'm the bad guy. Duh. Some people might embrace that bad guy and that becomes who, who you are and that becomes how you see yourself. In your story, you're the villain. Uh, some of us might see ourselves as the victim. Everything's always going bad for me. Everybody's against me and nothing's ever going to work out for me. There's no hope for me. And everybody else is the bad guy and I'm the victim. That might be the story that replays in your head. That's, you might see yourself as a victim. But God has something better. He has something better than you having to be the hero. He has something better than you being the villain, whether you like being the villain or not. He has something better than you being the victim. You don't have to be the victim. There's hope for you. And God says, I want you to be this. I want you to be my witness. I want, you to be the, I want you to be the witness of what I have done in your life. And when we're the witness, we look at the finished work of Christ and we say, he did it. He transformed my life. He, 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 he changed me. He's working it out in my life. He's in control. Look at what he's done. Look at what he did. He's the hero. And when I'm a witness, I point to him and I give him the glory. We don't have to be the villain carrying guilt and shame. We don't have to be the hero carrying burdens that we were not created to carry. We don't have to be the victim, hopeless. We can, we can look to the finished work of Christ and be his witnesses. That's what he calls us to be. And the world needs us to be his witnesses. They don't need us to be heroes. They don't need us to be the villain. Nobody needs you to be the victim, but if you can be a witness of Christ, you maybe can change someone else's life more so by being a witness than by you trying to be a hero because you can point them to the one who, who, who uh, is ultimately great, to the one who deserves all of the glory, and to the one that can actually bring about real change in their lives. I want to take some time and pray for us as we get ready to go. I want to pray for the person who might be carrying the burden of being the hero today. You, you can put that cape down today. I want, I want to pray for the person who might be carrying the burden of being the villain 
You're carrying guilt and shame this morning. And I want to pray for the person who feels like they're hopeless, they're the victim. Let's go before our, our king and pray. Father God, I come to you lifting up your people before you. God, you love them. You love them so much. And I pray that they know it. I pray that that individual that is carrying the cape and feeling all of the burdens of being the hero in their lives and in other people's lives, God, I pray that they would be able to put that down and, and trust you to be the hero and the savior. You're the hero and the savior that they were created for. God, I lift up the person who feels like the villain. They're always messing up. They're always getting it wrong somehow, some way. God, I pray that they would find grace today. And I lift up the person who feels like a victim, like nothing ever works out for me. Everyone is against me. And I, and, I, and I pray that they would see victory in you, that we would be your witnesses. See, in mighty sons, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.